they entered the position and really entered every day and every week and every assignment, every initiative with this ethos of, I, I don't know it all. And I'm, I'm going to do what I can to learn as much as I can, but they didn't walk in saying, I, I know exactly what to do. And so that's one element. The other is that they were really, really proactive and they almost anticipated needs of their colleagues, of potentially other divisions, but most certainly their boss um, and how to make her or his day-to-day -day life easier. Caution. Listening to this podcast may motivate you to make positive changes in your life, identify ways to accelerate your career trajectory and develop a path towards financial freedom. This is the Career Meets World podcast, and I'm your host, Edward Gorbis, and I've spent the last 10 years focused on helping thousands of people advance their career while in parallel teaching a secret recipe to reach financial independence. And I'm here to share the untold stories of successful people and teach thousands of listeners how to develop a growth mindset. Our minds are malleable. And everyone has the power to change their mindset through perseverance, dedication, and a passion for learning. So if you're ready to skyrocket your business and financial literacy, turn up the volume and let's dive right in. This is the Career Meets World podcast. On today's show, we have one of the most influential executive coaches I've ever met. Matt Spielman joins us today, and he's the founder of Inflection Point Partners. I'm pumped to have Matt join us because he has decades of experience working with other leaders, executives, and their respective teams across different verticals amidst times of rapid change and during challenging economic environments. Matt's held multiple senior level positions, including CMO, CRO, head of strategy and innovation, and head of people. He earned his MBA from the Harvard Business School and a bachelor's in economics from Columbia. And as a former nationally recognized collegiate athlete, marathon runner, and certified personal trainer, Matt places great importance on taking a holistic approach to empower and enable his clients to accomplish their professional and personal goals. And as a result, he has complemented his executive coaching training by becoming a health and well-being coach trained at Duke Integrative Medicine. Matt, thank you so much for joining us today to share your journey through life. Let's dive into your success stories and partnering with others to ignite their careers and energize their lives. It's great to be here. I really appreciate it. Thank you. Of course, Matt. It's always a pleasure to have you on. I do you want to get started with talking about your decorated background? I love your pedigree of a deep background in education. You've gone through the corporate route and learning how to master that. And now you've dedicated your life to really helping others. I'd love to understand a little bit about your journey and what helped you make that transition from going from corporate into the executive coaching world. Sure. So from executive to executive coach. It definitely wasn't a linear progression. It was something that I was entering the, the workplace upon graduation from undergrad. You know, I always looked for opportunities to kind of widen the aperture, learn about what people were doing around me, uh, what their aspirations were. There was a, a natural 
curiosity and inquisitiveness that I had. And I, I think that came from, and this was early on. So when I say like, I think I was still learning about myself. I think that came from me subconsciously asking the question, you know, what is my role in kind of this, this workplace, this work field, like what I can do with my career more broadly. And even though I didn't articulate it at the time like this is what are the things that I want to be doing and what is the impact that, that I want to have? And again, I wasn't able to necessarily articulate that fairly early on, but I knew it was driving a lot of my actions and it was every step that I took I knew that they were each of those steps was guided by you know getting closer to doing things on a daily basis, having that impact that they spoke about more and more, and just getting closer to it. Um, and it happened over time. You know, it wasn't like I went from 21 years old to at age 23 I became an executive coach. That wasn't the the progression at all. And in fact, that wouldn't have been successful for me to have done that and for my clients. I think I needed the, the 20 plus years or so of uh, everything that life experiences, work experiences uh, brought me. So I bring those to the table with my clients. Of course, uh, as we both know, there's absolutely nothing linear in life. And <laughs> it takes a lot of moments to really compile and for us to understand what our mission, what our goals are, what our values are. What I'd be curious to understand is along that journey, when you went from executive to executive coach, we've talked about this before, but I'd love for you to share with our listeners kind of who your greatest mentors were, who supported you through that time and what was so influential about them? Yeah, it is a great question and one that I'm smiling, you know, sort of thinking about because I remember when I was interviewing for... Uh, my positions kind of coming out of undergrad uh, college, I was looking at uh, investment banks and fixed income sales and trading programs. And we had those sort of super Saturdays at all of this. And we would have a series of interviews and they went quite well. I had been working part-time my junior and senior year while at college. So I was in the markets uh, for an investment bank. I was in the markets. I knew what I was talking about. So I was able to answer all the questions. There was one question I couldn't answer. The interviewer asked me, so who are your role models? Who are your mentors? And I paused. Basically, my answer was, I sort of cobbled an answer together. And I said, I, I don't really have a role model or role models per se, um, not in a traditional sense. And the person, you know, said, please explain, you know, more, tell, tell me more about that. And I said, I've kind of looked to different people and taken some of the things that have worked for them and that could work for me. Uh, not necessarily in, in business, of I know uh, present days in, in the news quite a bit, but Michael Jordan, not because he was necessarily the, the greatest you know, basketball player of all time and because his, his talent sort of speaks for itself, but it was the mental component. I, I was in awe of his ability to become even more of who he is in the most pressurized situations, whereas there are athletes who... There are sports psychologists on each of the professional teams. There are books. Dr. Jim Lair has written books on how to perform as well as you possibly can. It's something that so many athletes and us and in general, people sort of struggle with. And I was in awe that, that he was able to 
become even more of himself in those situations. So that was something that I really looked up to. I was really fortunate to have played Division One baseball in college and then had an opportunity to continue to pursue that uh, after graduation uh, from college. And along the way, we sometimes remember coaches that stand out. And for me, the coach, Coach Paul Fernandez at Columbia University, who had been there forever and won over 400 games, he said something to me that sticks with me to this day. And seemingly every week, it it comes up in some form or fashion. After my sophomore year, I had shoulder surgery after injuring it during the the season, uh, the summer. And then I came back in the fall and I kind of worked hard and rehabbed and uh, for those who've done rehab, it's kind of a lonely, a lonely experience getting up really early in the morning and kind of doing kind of sweating and toiling to kind of get back to what it is that you were doing before. And I remember passing by Coach Fernandez in the hallway and say, Coach, you know, I've been working really hard and I'm going to win back the starting position this year. And he said, Matt, you know, I, I've heard you've been working hard. That's great. And I, I wish you the best of luck, you know, when we have tri- tryouts again. and will see the performance on the field. And that sort of stuck with me in that, you know, words are vapid and that it's really about results and it's really about what somebody can produce. Um, And, you know, that made its way into, I remember I was a salesperson for many years in my career and it was less about the number of meetings that we went on and who we met with. And it was more about, okay, so what's the revenue that we're generating, right? That's even like the pipeline's important, but you know, what's the, and be real, truly realistic about kind of the, the close rates. So we'll see it on the field from Coach Fernandez. And then I would have to say, just sort of round it out. My wife, whom I met at business school, and you know, she was a classmate, a friend. She's amazing. Like she's absolutely, she's kind of my mentor, my advisor in, in many ways. We also the, the mother of our two amazing and wonderful children. The strength of our partnership means everything to me. And it's often demonstrated, you know, and it has been demonstrated throughout the, the two decades of, of marriage, but nowhere could it be seen in any greater way than four and a half years ago, where I said to her as chief marketing officer of this company and things were going well and sort of the career continues to build, where I really feel the most energy is seeing other people thrive and succeed and develop and grow. And for the last three or four years, I've been thinking about kind of working with people and partnering with them to sort of, again, to see them accomplish something of meaning. And that means sort of going back to school, doing it the right way and to become an executive coach. Sure. At age 44, okay, quit, you know, quit your job, obviously in, in a positive way, but quit your job no income, go back to school, and then X number of months later, launch a career. Sure, go ahead and do that. But she was 100% behind me. She knew that this was something that I very much wanted to do. She believed in me. And she knows a really sort of happy and passionate and energized Matt is a much better than sort of a frustrated um, and squelched Matt. I don't think that happens all the time um, in partnerships and relationships. And that just you know made me feel that much more close to her, uh, and I also felt like she believed in me and she had my back. So I, that that's probably the most. I I I, I it's hard for me to. I'm sort of struggling to come up with the words of, of how important her support was and continues to and is uh, for my career. 
That's incredible. There are so many incredible nuggets that you just shared from who your mentors were and the importance of recognizing that they can come in all different forms. But most importantly, it sounds like you have an incredibly supportive family and more importantly, a wife throughout your journey as you made that career pivot. Like a lot of people buy a stereotypical car in their mid 40s or 50s, but it sounds like you decided it's time to help people and it's time to revolutionize my life. So that's what I admire about your story. Mm. Uh, funny enough, funny enough, you bring up Michael Jordan and somebody that I adored when I was a kid and when I immigrated with my family in 1994 to Chicago, uh, the Bulls were the hot ticket in town and I didn't speak a word of English, but fortunately my dad put on the TV and basketball was the only thing that I would watch and tolerate. And I learned a lot through those even early years of my life. And Michael Jordan always stuck out to me because he's, as you mentioned, arguably the best player of all time. What's incredible about Michael Jordan and what you mentioned about this notion of persistence and understanding what one values in their life. You've shared a story with me that is incredible and it's, it's about the piano man and it's more specifically around how do we understand what we are good at in life and what our destiny is in life and to make sure we pursue that destiny. So I'd love for you to expand on it, share us your version. It's incredible to hear every single time and I'll let you take it away. Hmm. Well, I, I appreciate that. And just before I, jump into that and thank you for teeing it up so well the former shortstop of the Mets came to America when when he was in the minor leagues and he learned English through watching friends so you kind of learning the the English words and the nuances of the language by watching bowl games is is pretty interesting to me Um, pretty amazing so I remember this frenetic, energized, sort of crazed person in sometime in late August of 1997, running from my dorm room to my classroom at Aldrich 109 uh, at graduate school, where, where I went to business school, and running to my friend Greg and saying, Greg, 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 what's your piano man? And he looked at me quizzically as, as like really with as if I had three eyes. And he said, like, well, what the hell are you talking about? And I said, well, and then I, I, I went into the story. So quickly, the night before, I was reading one of our, our business cases for, in preparation for a class the next day, and I had the sort of the, the, the TV in my gaze, you know, where I could see it, and I, the volume was high enough where I could make out enough of the sound. And I saw 30-second advertisement on TV, and I saw Billy Joel playing. Um, I'd like to think it was Madison Square Garden, but I was in Boston, so maybe it wasn't, but it, it doesn't really matter. But he was playing Piano Man, and I heard the chorus of what I envisioned to be 18,000 people at Madison Square Garden singing Piano Man in unison, singing the song in unison. And for whatever, I put down my, my case, these three thoughts. The first thought, and they were kind of like in ascending order of importance. So the first thought was, wow, like probably be pretty amazing to be at that concert to like have 18,000 people singing anything in unison is probably a bit of a spiritual experience. The second thought is, man, what if Billy Joel had decided not to become a musician? It's certainly not the path of least resistance, right? It's very challenging. I don't know what the odds are Um, pretty low, uh, but it was something that he sort of felt like he needed to do. What if he didn't sit down and write that song and then the scores of other pretty amazing songs that become 
kind of the patch quilt of people's memories, experiences, childhoods, etc. The third one was a little bit more self-serving, and I think the most important, and I think why you're asking the question, which is, you know, what is my version of the piano man? Right, not necessarily to write a song and sing it to eighteen thousand people at Madison Square Garden or the Fleet Center or whatever venue it might be, but I believe that each of us has, you know, one, two, three, or more, but at least sort of one version of that piano man, and it could be that, it could be being a second grade teacher uh, where you currently live, it could be a stay at home dad, but it's what is most reflective of what it is that you really want to do um, that you gravitate towards where you have the most energy around and then do what you can in order to find out what that is. And the answer might come the next day. It might come in 20 years, but you know, what is my version of Billy Joel's piano man? So that's where, you know, I ended up writing a piece uh, when I launched this business, which is, you know, inflection point partners, my company, uh, which is, you know, what's your piano man? It's kind of incumbent upon us, I think, so we live a life of sort of energy and passion and excitement to find that thing or those things that we really want to express and to do. Uh, and that's kind of what I've dedicated my, 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 my kind of life to. I love it. And I love hearing that story every single time because it's inspirational. It's a reminder that whether it be our listeners, your individuals that you work with, it's important to find our piano man and understand what's our ambition, what's our mission in life. Uh, and I just think it's a beautiful story. If I just quickly add, just there was a tangential thought that I had too. I often speak, you know, and I hear people talk in shoulds a lot. So I had this notion of like, man, you know, people like they're, they're sort of following an exogenous force of, well, I should do this or I should do that or I should do that. And I'm like, how much more powerful and almost liberating would it be if we sort of move from should to could? What could I do here? What are the possibilities or what, what is possible? And once, once somebody asks, you know, what could I do? versus what should I do, there's almost like, as I mentioned, sort of liberating and it sort of comes from within, it emanates from within and sort of, I don't know, it's, uh, I've tried it with several people and they're like, wow, yeah, yeah that, that's really powerful. Like, what could I do? It opens up kind of the aperture of possibilities uh, for that individual. And it's very much in the spirit of, you know, what is my version of Piano Man, which is, you know, what could I do with the time that I have in front of me? Certainly. And if we take that a little bit deeper, even because what you're hitting at is the root of almost the interior of the human being and understanding who you are as oneself, an important layer that you've included into your practice is this idea of a holistic understanding of an individual to optimize your performance and be the best version of yourself. And I know as you made the transition from the executive world into executive coaching, you spent a little bit of time really certifying yourself, learning the practice. You spent a little bit of time at Duke understanding the entire approach. What was that transition like and what did you take away from the holistic practice? Well, yeah, and just taking a step back, I prior to getting into the, the specifics of that, I felt 
that I wanted to launch this business sort of on at least three sturdy legs, forming the kind of the foundation that of forming that table of sorts that could support a whole lot of weight of a practice that really impacts people's lives. You know, one of which was my sort of work experience and just life experience of, of 20 years or so. The second leg was how I'm constituted as a person and what sort of energizes me and excites me. And the third was I really wanted to have world-class training with amazing, inspiring professors, cohort members, sort of classmates upon whom I can call, potentially work with, et cetera. And knowing also that this is a continuous sort of learning experience coaching, the coaching process, the coaching conversation, uh, really working with people and teams and organizations to help them succeed. And also that's a, it's a bit of a squishy field still being defined. And there are a lot of people out there calling themselves coaches who don't have formalized training. There might even be the wrong usage of the, or the phrasing of the word coach or executive coach or career coach or health coach, et cetera. So that was really, really important to me. I really want to do it the right way. So in that, I entered this the program at Columbia Coaching Certification Program um, at Columbia University, which is a joint venture between the business school, Columbia, and Teachers College, and very rigorous program. I'm really glad I did that. Um, amazing professors, I and mean, it sort of exceeded any expectations I had. And that's for executive coach, executive and organizational coaching. We really learned the science and the research behind the coaching conversation, which can be really transformative, really, well, really powerful, and the coaching partnership can be really transformative. I then, you know, in working with and partnering with people, you know, and anybody, um, executives, people in career transition, people retiring, whatever the case may be, I realized that by the fourth or fifth session, we were no longer solely talking about necessarily preparing for a board meeting or assuming the first 90 days of a new position or what's the best way to do an, an all hands meeting or something like that. But it was more, Matt, I've been traveling, I'm tired, I'm not really exercising or moving the way I kind of want to. I have some lower back pain. I'm not really eating well. I'm having trouble working out, et cetera. I'm lethargic, I'm tired, et cetera. So I'm like, if I really want to work in service of the person in front of me, then I should get as familiar as I possibly can around sort of all those sort of facets of the wheel of you know, life. And one of those wheels being sort of one's health and how he or she sort of shows up at work or shows up in life. And I once again did my research to find the most well thought of and highly regarded programs in sort of the health and well-being coaching and Duke School of Integrated Medicine sort of was right at the very top. And uh, I entered that and I completed that program. And it's like, it again, once again, it sort of exceeded the, the research paid off because it exceeded any expectations that I had. So nice compliment to the executive and organizational coaching, the health and well-being coaching. And that is also buttressed by a certification in personal training, as well as a certification in nutrition. And you also caught me, I'm in week three of Stanford, uh, has a nutrition course, Stanford Medical School. And I'm in week three of week eight of uh, or week, eight weeks total of that particular program. So this is kind of a continuous learning, continuous development of myself. But these are important tools that I want to keep sharpening again to energize, you know, help people accomplish things of great import to them. That, that will be a theme that will continue for the balance of, uh, I guess, the, the, you know, the balance of my career, the balance of my existence.
I do believe that learning is a continuous process and you've clearly embodied all of that, whether it be from your days early on at Columbia to Harvard Business School and back to Columbia and to Duke. And now you're taking on even more coursework. I'd love for you to kind of walk through for our listeners your relationship with learning and education and what your recommendation would be for others as they maybe exit college or a few years beyond it and really trying to understand how do I find myself through life? I believe learning and education is a big part of that, but what are some of the tips that you could share with others? Yeah. So there are a couple of facts of life that exist today where we take them as truisms that really speak to the question that, that you just asked, which is, you know, the one constant is change. And that if we are going to position ourselves for this constant of change, and we're seeing change even, you know, happen more rapidly now at an increasing pace, what are we going to do in order to keep up with that change and position ourselves to make ourselves as relevant and as resonant, you know, as possible to our employers, to our teams, to ourselves, to our spouse, to our partners, to our kids, and which leads to sort of the next truism, sort of the, the fact that we're existing. There's never been more information sort of readily at our fingertips um, and courses that we can take and books that we could read or listen to if we're going on walks. And I think it's very easy to just as change is scary for people for the one constant has changed sort of truism. It also, there's an enormous amount of information. It almost like is sipping water from a fire hose and can be overwhelming. So I think sort of putting a filtering mechanism over, well, what are the things that interest me? You know, and just sort of, so instead of reading the entire Wall Street Journal, for example, there may be the A, B, or the C section. One of the sections is more about marketing and technology. And there's another section about the markets and what did the bond rates close at yesterday? And what is the one section or even the one area of one section that is of most interest to you? Of the 10,000 courses that you could take online, what might be one that you want to identify over the next six months that is of interest to you, that energizes you, that excites you? These are sort of phrasings that I use quite a bit because it's generally coming from within. Again, it's not a should, right? It's, it's not, hey, you know, Matt, you should be doing this or you should take this. Oh, yeah, you know, I, I really should be doing it. should. It, if you ask, you know, what, what, what could I do now? What is of most interest to me? Let me look around the world and what are the information sources? Uh, who are the people that are doing interesting things that I could reach out to and schedule a coffee or in today's day and age, schedule a video session or a phone conversation? Just Tell me what it's like on a day-to-day basis to kind of do your job. What do you, what do you look forward to kind of when, when you wake up? What are you looking forward to next year, you know, as the, as the position or as the company continues to develop? Just there's so much learning that can be done, especially today. People are so much more accessible. Information is so much more accessible. Courses are so much more accessible. Um, it can quickly be paralytic in nature. But I think if it comes from a place of, you know, what could I do? What interests me? What excites me? I think that's the best filtering mechanism to parse your way through the handful of things you may want to dig into if it's on a quarterly goal that you may have or semi-annual, et cetera. Absolutely. And 
to go even deeper on that, I'm curious, what are some of your favorite books that you've read over time that have helped you kind of evolve and develop? What a great question. Um, great, great question. So ah, there are so many and uh, you would laugh if you saw my, so it's like a pile of articles and books. And then of course, I've kind of the requisite iPad to, to read. So uh, answering the question, there is an amazing book written by Marcus Buckingham and his partner, Kurt Kaufman, called First Break All the Rules, that one of my mentors, Matt Blumberg, and the founder of a company called Return Path, um, gave to me in 1999. And there's a couple of reasons why it's, I think, one of the better business books uh, and more useful business books that it has been written. One is it's steeped in data. I'm kind of a big, big data guy. And they, the Gallup organization did in-depth interviews with about 80,000 managers across 400 companies. It's sort of the largest study of its kind ever undertaken to identify, you know, what great managers do and really, you know, how employees feel at the organization. And you can also extrapolate to that is what, are, what, what do great or how do engaged employees feel within great organizations and you know how can organizations improve their level of engagement among their employees and you know they came up with these sort of 12 questions of that if employees can answer yes to these 12 questions and it truly was uh, a place where people felt you know engaged and they were excited to come to work etc and there are questions like do i know what's expected of me at work Yes or no? Do I know, do I have the materials and equipment I need to do my work right? Yes or no? At work, do I have the opportunity to do what I do best every day? Yes or no? In the last seven days, have I received recognition or praise for doing good work? Yes or no? Et cetera, et cetera. So that would that sort of st as a manager, and I want to, or as as an employee, and then ultimately a manager uh, for twenty years, I wanted to be the most effective. You know, I, I wanted people to really like working on the team. And so I frequently use that book and I included that in my goals when I wrote my goals for every year that I wanted the folks on my team to be able to answer yes to over 80% of those, what I call the measuring stick, you know, uh, of those questions. So that became, this is a book I read in 1999, but it's something that I refer to all, all the time. The... So that was a little bit earlier on. And there's an, another book. So Jack Welch, Straight from the Gut. There was an element, there's a lot, many, many, many elements in that. And he was a really, truly amazing leader. The power of simplicity in messaging and sort of saying those sort of messages and mantras sort of over, over and over again and the power of that within an organization. And I know when he got to GE, he quickly realized, he said, okay, my message is going to be, I'm just going to say it every day till I'm sort of sick of it and sort of blue in the face. We are going to be, you know, each one of our divisions is going to stay a division if it's the number one or number two. I, I don't know whether it's number one, number two, or number three. I think it's the number one or number two in their respective standing. And if it's not, then we're going to shut down this division or, you know, or, or, or sell it off. And this is what he said. He all, it wasn't like a long three paragraphs. He didn't get up in front of talking to everybody. Say long-winded messages. It was very, people understood what it is that they needed to accomplish in their respective division. 
in order for them to achieve success. And then on the more sort of recent front and a little bit more, more existential, and it really relates to some of the things that we've been talking about, Viktor Frankl has penned several works. I think the most well-known one is Man's Search for Meaning. And there also have been books that have been written about him. And I take a lot from him. I mean, a lot of people take a lot from him, even Simon Sinek, the emphasis on the why, where, you know, Viktor Frankl was very much, and I'm sort of paraphrasing here, but if somebody understands, you know, kind of his or her why, kind of their, their drivers, um, they can almost work through any how. And in fact, Viktor Frankl sort of quotes Nietzsche and, you know, in that, but he, he, he states it as well in his several books. And that ethos and that approach has worked its way into not only my life, but in, in my practice. And in fact, we have an approach where we work with, with folks and we spend a lot of time on getting at people's why, what drives them, what are excited, what they're excited about, what they gravitate towards. And then, you know, what could that manifest into? What does that look like? What do they want to accomplish and achieve? And then the, all of that drives the how, which is the easiest part. It's the most work and it could be really tiring, but it's the most, uh, but it's, it's, it's the easiest part of the entire sort of three-step process, the why, what, how. Uh, but when I recently came across this, I'm amazed that it took me so long to read Man's Search for Meaning. Uh, it was like, that's, that's kind of what I've been thinking about for so long. He just articulates it infinitely better than, than, than I do. Um, so I'm going to sort of stand on the, the shoulder of, of that giant and sort of incorporate it even more so in my career, in my practice and in my career more broadly. Ever since you actually mentioned that book to me, I bought it immediately. I powered through it and it's definitely reinforced a lot of personal beliefs, but gained a deeper appreciation for this notion of finding meaning in your life. And for those that can stomach kind of the intensity of the book, because Viktor Frankl is and was a Holocaust survivor, um, turned into arguably one of the smartest psychologists of our time, he talks a lot about that when you're stripped of everything in life, all you have left is your attitude. And, yeah. if, and if we can master our own attitude, then we can conquer anything. Yeah, really well said. And he mentioned that the two elements that got him through the several camps that uh, he was in during the Holocaust is when he entered his manuscript that he had sewed into his jacket was taken from him and that he sort of committed in his mind that he was going to rewrite his manuscript and do it however he could, whether it's memorizing it or finding little pieces of parchment. And that was one. And the other was his, you know, a really vivid and clear image of his pregnant wife who also entered the camps and who just sadly and you know, horrifically did not survive. But that image of her in his mind, that why, those two whys that he had enabled him to get through any how that, that he experienced. The other thing about that book is people sort of read it and they want, you know, what is my meaning? What is my purpose? And he said, that it's definitely a worthwhile, those are worthwhile questions to ask. He also said sometimes framing it in a slightly different way can be even more powerful. Certainly is such a great book. Uh, yeah, Man's Search for Meaning by Viktor Frankl. On 
a slightly different topic. I know we've talked a lot about your successes, your transitions, your inflection points. I, I'd love to dig into a little bit. We all have very challenging moments in our lives, and oftentimes people shy away from talking about it partly because our society praises all the good things, all the high moments in our lives. And I'd love for you to unpack even one of the most challenging moments in your career, how you kind of transition through that moment, what you learned and what were your biggest takeaways in that moment as well. It's a fantastic question in the sense of it's not often asked. And my most recent stint, at a company called Return Path, uh, where I was employee number three uh, back in late 99, early 2000. And I, I stayed for three years. And I, I worked for this wonderful, who's become a, a, a mentor, advisor, and now a, a close friend. Uh, his name is Matt Blumberg, and just truly one of the, the great CEOs that, that I've ever sort of experienced. About 10 years after I had left, uh, I think in 2004, he asked me if I wanted to come back as the chief marketing officer of this, this firm that powered email marketers across the globe. And it was a sort of a technology data and analytics firm. And he is so compelling. The people that he assembled are just, were just so compelling and fascinating and engaging that I was so excited to kind of rejoin him and them. I didn't place enough importance on tasks that I'd be doing on a day-to-day -day basis. Was what we were doing, you know, at the company part of a mission that I wanted, you know, that I, that really lit me up and, and excited me. And I, I think the answer to some of those questions was, was no. And if not, like, a, I'm not sure it's so binary at times, like, yes, no, but on the scale of one to 10, 10 being an absolute yes and one being an absolute no, it's probably like a three to five, let's go call it a four. And I don't know if that's enough for somebody like me in order to go take that position and do everything possible to succeed in, in that position. I went through all the steps and I went through more than the steps. You know, I did my first 90 days program, you know, onboarding program that I designed and I did that effectively. We kind of built the team and ran the team effectively. There were many things that I didn't do that I probably could have done, especially as a chief marketing officer who was supposed to fill that role and do that several tasks at hand. I thought I did some things well and some things not well at all. And I think partly because there was a big part of me that began to eye, I want to be doing something different in my career. And what we were doing, no offense to anybody, was actually we were really helping email marketers and marketing in general. It was just at that stage and that inflection point of my career, not necessarily something that I wanted to do. And it's this notion of, you know, the power of what I was saying before about should versus could. It was sort of like I should People said, Matt, that's a really good role. Chief marketing officer, this global company, it's, it's you know, potentially poised to go public or get acquired. Like, oh, I, I really should do that. But really, maybe I, you know, I, is that really what I could do right now at this, at this stage? And so I learned in, in a bit of the hard way that I really need to take action and those actions that are most reflective of really what I want to do, that I don't fake it very well. And especially at that sort of stage in my career, if I was earlier, you know, right after undergrad, I'm going to learn and maybe go to business school afterwards. And like, but that wasn't where I was in my career. And you know, this is like 2013 to 2015. 
And ultimately, you know, I, I think my performance was decent, you know, like call it scale, like using the scale again from one to 10, 10 being great performance, like a plus plus and three dots. I don't know. It was probably six or a seven and there's no, and there may have been some of my colleagues on the executive leadership team who say it was even lower than that. That's perfectly fine. But there's, it certainly wasn't my piano man. And I think anything that I do, I want to be, you know, and I'll never be a 10, but a nine and just, you know, I think I'm constantly in beta and I wasn't there. So Matt Blumberg who become a, like I mentioned, a mentor and a dear friend. You know, we had a really tough discussion, which is like, I, I don't think I'm cast correctly in this role. And he agreed, I don't think you're cast correctly in this role. So we agreed that, you know, for the sake of this company that I helped found and build, you know, 20 or at that time, sort of 15 years earlier, and I care about him and the team, we just decided on a very, very fine sort of way just to kind of part paths and he ceased becoming the chief marketing officer of Return Path. And they went on to be very successful and they were, re they were acquired last year in a, in a successful exit. And I'm so happy for him you know, the executive leadership team and the entire company. But that was one of those things where it was more of a should versus really addressing the question of what, what could I do that is most reflective of what I want to do at that time. Thank you for being so honest and open. And there's really two takeaways for me on that one. One, I'd argue probably everyone throughout their career will end up saying yes to jobs that might not quite feel right in their gut. But as you mentioned, they feel like they should take it because it seems like the right opportunity or there's external pressure to take that role. What is part two of that is when we do take those types of roles, we end up learning an incredible amount about ourselves and what we care about, what we value. And clearly that was that moment for you. And right afterwards is where you ultimately made that transition into the world of executive coaching and took the right steps to become an incredible executive coach. So I want that, I want that to be a lesson for many people that it's okay to take those roles, but it's important to understand ultimately what you can get from it, what you can learn and walk away with those important lessons. Extremely well said, much more articulate than what I expressed. So that, thank you for that. Of course. We're having fun with it. So you've managed many teams throughout your career, and clearly you've done it at many C-suite levels. You've seen a lot of successful people pass through your teams, get promoted, lead the companies, but let's focus on the A-plus performers. What, what were the key characteristics for those individuals? How did they earn promotions, and what can you share with others so that they can continue to emulate those specific steps? They entered the position and really entered every day and every week and every assignment, every initiative with this ethos of, I, I don't know it all. And I'm, I'm going to do what I can to learn as much as I can, but they didn't walk in saying, I, I know exactly what to do. And so that's one element. The other is that they were really really proactive and they almost anticipated needs of their colleagues of potentially other divisions, but most certainly their boss um, and how to make her or his day-to-day -day life easier. And also coming, you know, in, in, as it relates to the approach and interacting with the manager of coming with a point of view. And it's okay to say, look, you know, 
I, I had a question on the second assignment that we were talking about. My take would be to potentially approach it this way and doing this, this, and this. But I wanted to run that by you as opposed to say, I had a question about two, what number two, the second initiative here, what should I do? And so that. We spoke earlier about this sort of continuous learning. And I think even when on the job, uh, and it depends on the size of the organization, but there may be many people, hey, I, I, I really like how, how Ed does that. I, I want to like schedule coffee with him. Or I really like you know, that, that book that I read on effective, you know, being an effective salesperson. I want to kind of start sort of honing my, my skill set there. So this, this spirit of, hey, maybe the, uh, I can go take this leadership development program you know, at that particular organization and let me figure out a best the way to pitch that to my manager and you know, the head of learning and development. Like, what can I do to continually sort of grow kind of who I am as an executive and as a person? Are elements that that really come, and you know, it's sort of all related to is generally nothing of huge consequence happens alone. So there is, you know, there's the cliche: there's no I in team. I do think really meaningful things are iterative processes and that the part of that sort of iterative nature is sort of ideas and workflow bouncing off of other people and ultimately getting to a better place. So teamwork, but I just sort of talked about it in a little bit more specificity, the power of team. Of course. And what you're alluding to ultimately is this notion of a growth mindset is it sounds like individuals on your team are always open to learning to understanding and recognizing others who embodied what they may have wanted to become and what they valued. And it's important to learn from others. And any successful company on the planet certainly takes away this notion of teamwork. Um, and it's clearly something that every single one of your successful performers had. Yeah. And, and I might just add, you know, sort of bring back Coach Hernandez from my, my days sort of playing baseball. In our locker room, he had several sayings on the wall, and one of them that I remember vividly was, you know, you show me a person who's afraid to fail, and I'll show you somebody who will fail every time. I don't know if the person will fail every time, but also this notion of, you know what, this may not work out. I can't control everything that's going to happen here, but I'm, I'm not going to let that fear get in the way of that which I want to do. It's a beautiful quote, and thanks for sharing it with us. As you just mentioned, we will fail in our lives over and over and over again. And that's okay because that's where a lot of these lessons come from. And we take so much away in taking risks and seeking out opportunities that we might not have and just letting ourselves enjoy the process. That's the biggest part of this whole thing is it's all a big process and we have to trust in it. And with that said, there are certainly many people in our lives that have helped us through these failures. You had hit on earlier on some of your personal mentors and obviously Coach Fernandez was a huge part of your life. What are some of the current books, tools, resources that you like to use that help you on a consistent and daily basis? It's more of the inner drive to seek out those resources. So to seek out the people that I, before going through this career transition, I spoke to 35 people and to identify what they're doing, how they went about it, et cetera. What are they reading? Where do they study? 
uh, if they studied, why didn't they study? Like all, all of that. So I think it sort of starts from within first and you, everything is, is really, really accessible. I think having, yeah, so I, I think right there, but I also, this, this informal board of directors that you can assemble for yourself, that people are, are different from you and it, it's between three and five people and you might meet informally, you know, where you can kind of reach out to them or formally like every quarter and you sort of share what it is that you're working on and working towards and you sort of set their expectations, set expectations for them that you want them to hold you accountable, but you intentionally bring incorporate three to five people who are sort of different from you and uh, who can compliment you. Uh, I, I think can be, there was an HBR piece about this that triggered this idea. And I sort of created something for myself that kind of works where I do have, I have six people actually that I, we do meet twice a year formally when I say formally, not suit and tie, but it's a scheduled meeting. And then informally, I sort of reach out to them and engage them and they kind of like mentors, advisors, and they hold me accountable. And I share with them what I'm working on and working towards. I share my goals for the year, et cetera. That is a really effective sort of practice or can, can be a really effective practice if used right. And it's arguably the one of the most effective practices I've ever heard of. It was introduced mm -hmm. to me a couple of years ago as well and something I've instituted in my life. For anybody listening, I certainly would recommend the article. I'll share it out as a link. But with that being said, you have so much advice to share with a lot of different people and we really appreciate you coming onto the show today. I do want to make sure that our listeners have an opportunity to reach out to you and stay in touch with you to continue to learn from a lot of your experiences. I know you're running your business inflection point partners where people can easily reach out to you there. What are some other ways that people can connect with you? So I'm eminently accessible. I, it's funny. It's very fluid between sort of personal and professional life because I sort of am doing what it is that I love on a daily basis. I'm just really lucky. So like, I don't mind reading the email or getting a text or talking on the phone about any and all of these particular topics and, you know, partnering with people to help them work towards something that is really meaningful to them. So that said, you know, people can reach out to me. I, I think emails probably, so it doesn't get lost. Sometimes if I get a bunch of texts, I it doesn't sort of categorize as easily as sort of an email sort of box does. Um, Matt at, and it's a bit of a mouthful, inflectionpointpartnersllc.com. Also, if people want to find me on LinkedIn, I'd love to hear from you. Drop me a note and we'll schedule a video or a phone call straight away. We have a lot of listeners on this show who are eager to either move up in their career or transition into a different role. What's the number one piece of advice that you would share in terms of helping others be successful? Generate three to four hypotheses of jobs that you might want to do and go out and test those hypotheses. The word hypothesis is used intentionally. You then need to be the catalyst, jump into the beaker, as we sort of saw in chemistry class in high school, start that sort of catalytic reaction with the vapor kind of flowing over the sides. And that means getting out there and testing the hypotheses. And the best way to test your hypotheses is to meet with people who are doing that particular job that you've set, that you've laid out in, let's say, hypothesis one, and then you have hypothesis two, and hypothesis three, hypothesis four. I'd sort of stop at four. As you talk to having coffee with them or talking to them on the phone or by video, you know, you go in with 
intentionality about here's the questions I want to ask. I want to get them talking about themselves and almost like try on the clothes to see how they look and they feel to see if they were that hypothesis was sort of better on the rack or better on me. And based upon what it is that you're hearing from the person that you're talking to and the people that you're talking to, you can then go back to your hypotheses and you can either kind of refine them and maybe the language gets a little bit sharper. Uh, for example, I started out saying hypothesis would be HR. The more I met with people, it's it'd be a chief human resources officer for Fortune 500 company. Then it became an executive coach. So I, the language got sharper over time. So that's refining, kind of refuting, like absolutely not. That's not something that I want to do. I thought that was something that I want to do. That's very helpful. And then corroborating. That is that right there is something, the way he describes it, the way she talks about, you know, what, she's looking forward to and that what she's working on. That's the kind of thing that I am working around those types of people and that type of environment. That's what I want to do. And how do I talk to more people like that? One of the areas of pushback I get is, well, I don't have time to talk to so many people and do these informational discussions to test my hypotheses. You're much more likely to get the desired outcome if you position it as, hey, you know what? I want to learn about you, your career path, your position and your organization. And then as, as you're sort of at being intentional and asking incisive questions, if something is resonating loudly and it's very relevant to you and what you might want to do next, there's always the opportunity to ask that powerful question of, you know what, Matt, I really appreciate the time today. You've answered all my questions. I couldn't help but getting excited, get excited about sort of putting myself in you know, some of those answers there. What might be the best way to explore an opportunity within your organization? Not do you have a job? Um, that's the person's going to recoil and go into the corner. It's more, you know, almost like figuratively putting your arm around the individual and saying, you know, like, what's the best way to explore an opportunity within your organization? Um, and it's repeatedly, and then ending every single conversation, assuming that there's as interest in you in, ter in terms of exploring more, who might be two other people that I could have a similar conversation with? And then, so you're almost like moving from, if you have a whiteboard, moving from, left to right and just sort of this web of people keeps sort of growing, right? You start off with Matt, Matt recommends, you know, refers you to one, two or three people, let's say, but be specific, who might be two, three, and then some on the spot, they'll come up with one, two or three. If you say, you know, hey, you know, uh, can I reach out to you after, see if you recommend that I talk to some other people? Yeah, sure, once people get back to their desk, it's, it's over, it's over. They have lots of emails, et cetera. So right there on the spot. And you just keep engaging, you keep jumping into the beaker, you keep, keep you know, triggering that catalytic reaction, you keep testing those hypotheses, refining them, and the image of like your personal jigsaw puzzle, your career, I think those pieces only come when you start engaging other people. And the more conversations, and even the more articles you read, and the books you read, and all that stuff, is you gather more pieces of your jigsaw puzzle. And that's what you need. And in theory, the more image of the images, uh, pieces of the jigsaw puzzle that you gather, the clearer the image becomes, um, and you're much closer to uh, that desired next step. Exactly. It sounds like networking is such a catalyst for growth in our lifetime. And I appreciate your thoughtfulness with all the answers. That's all the time that we have today. Thank you again, Matt, for joining us. Super great to have you on the show and can't wait to have you back. Well, really, the, the honor and the privilege was mine, and you asked really good questions, and I, I really appreciate the time today. Hey, 
Thanks so much for listening to the Career Meets World podcast. I would love to get to meet you. There are a couple of ways we can connect. You know I love my LinkedIn. Simply search for Career Meets World or Edward Gorbis and feel free to connect. Second is via Instagram at Career Meets World. And third is through our website. I have a special spot for you full of fun, free resources. All you have to do is go to careermeetsworld.com, subscribe to our newsletter, and we'll provide you the free resources to help you boost your career and reach financial freedom. And if this podcast was helpful to you in any way, please consider rating and reviewing this podcast on Apple Podcasts. This helps us help more people. Simply tap the rate with five stars and leave a sentence with what you liked about the podcast. Thanks so much for tuning in. Remember, strengthening your growth mindset is your ticket to success. I'm Edward Gorbis, and we'll catch you on next week's episode.